0: Bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Into the Woods.
1: I see a glimmer.
0: But first, how are you doing? I hope you are well, as always. I hope that you are safe and cozy and content as you listen to this, the latest episode of The Musical Man. I welcome you once more, Patty. Thank you very much each and every week, just knocking it out of the park. Thank you very much again, Patty. Patty, we have to dive right in. We have so much to talk about with this week's subject, but we have, of course, we can talk about it. Yes, we can talk about the 2019 nominees for the Tony Award. Award for best musical. If you'll recall, I predicted that the following shows would be nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Be More Chill, Tootsie, Hades Town, and the prom. Now, Tootsie was originally, I originally predicted Beetlejuice, I took that out, replaced it with Tootsie, so my slate of predictions was Be More Chill, Tootsie, Hadestown, the prom, and the official nominees for 2019 are Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations, Beetlejuice, Hadestown, the prom, and Tootsie. So, what I've learned is I probably should make five predictions instead of four. I have learned that now in education is what I am getting. But what I'm most confused by is how can Be More Chill, which earned a best score nomination this year, it earned that. How, how can it get that nomination, but not a nomination for best musical? That always confuses me. If it's good enough to be nominated for best score, it should not automatically get a nomination for best musical. I, I, I don't think Think there should be an equivalence there, but it just you're, you're saying the score is one of the best scores that were written in the past season. But it's not eligible for Best Musical? Or not eligible, but just not good enough? That's ridiculous, in my opinion. Now, Town secured 14 nominations, while Ain't Too Proud secured 12. So you would think maybe that it would be a close race for who takes home the big prize of Best Musical. But the buzz around Town is so strong, I think we can assume it will win the night. I think that's a very safe assumption to make. Looking forward to covering all of these shows, they have been added to the podcast's official Google Sheet, which you can access via the pinned tweet on our Twitter page. Uh, That is Musical Man Pod, but I will wait until after the ceremony before covering them properly. I want to find out who winds up getting the best musical award first before we dive into that. So just just know that they are not currently eligible for a visit via the musical carousel, but we will, of course, absolutely get to them. And that's our opening segment. Let's get into the show facts regarding Into the Woods. Into the Woods was a 1988 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on November 5th, 1987 at the Martin Beck Theater and ran for 765 performances. The book was written by James Lapine. The music and lyrics were written by Stephen Sondheim. The director of the original production was James Lapine. The musical director was Paul Gemignani. Oh, I think that's a name that I have probably mispronounced before, it seems familiar to me. The choreographer, uh, and we should say this is another musical staging by credits, so not officially recognized as choreographer, musical staging by Lar Lubavitch, the set design was by Tony Stragi's, again, I apologize for these mispronunciations, (laughs) I assume I'm getting them wrong, the lighting design was by Richard Nelson, the costume design was by Anne Hold Ward, and the original Broadway cast included Tom Aldridge, Bernadette Peters, Robert Westenberg, Chip Zuckerberg. Now I'll just pause right there because I think a lot of people think it's zine A lot of people think it's zine I specifically went to YouTube and found a clip of him pronouncing his own name and he pronounces it as Zion And I'm honestly that's been bugging me for years I always assumed I was getting that wrong and he's fantastic. He's great So I'm glad that at least in this instance I was able to confirm that I now know his pronunciation I have it in my heart and in my mind. So continuing with this cat We have Barbara Bryn, Kim Crosby, Maureen Davis, Danielle Fairland, Joy Franz, Philip Hoffman, Joanna Gleason, Gene Kelly, Merle Louise, Edmund Lindek, Kay McClelland, Lauren Mitchell, Chuck Wagner, Pamela Winslow, and Ben Wright. Here is the breakdown in regards to the nominations and wins for Into the Woods. So it was nominated, of course, for Best Musical. It was also nominated for Best Direction of a Musical. That nomination went to Lapine. Also nominated for Best Performance by a Featured Actor and musical, Robert Westenberg. Nominated for Best Choreography, Lara Lubavitch. Nominated for Best Scenic Design, Tony stragis Nominated for Best Costume Design, Anne Hold Ward. And nominated for Best Lighting Design, Richard Nelson. The show won Best Original Score, which went to Sondheim. It also won Best Book of a Musical, which went to Lapine, Pine. And it won Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical, and that went to Joanna Gleason. Couldn't be more deserving if she tried. She's fantastic in the show. So in total, 10 10- nominations and three wins and harkening back to my confusion regarding be more chill so just to review into the woods one best original score and best book of a musical. When you add the score and the book of a musical and you're saying that they're the best the season had to offer, and yet it doesn't win best musical, my brain explodes. My brain cannot handle it. We'll talk about what won. More than likely, a lot of you already know what won that year, but we'll get to that near the end of the show. We got a lot of ground to cover before we get to that. So let's talk about the plot of Into the Woods, shall we? So the show opens by a stat- Establishing the Wants or Wishes of our core cast of characters via the storybook recitation of an onstage narrator. The narrator is a character properly represented on stage. So Cinderella longs to attend the King's Festival. These are all fairy tale characters in case you're uh, really not familiar with the show. Uh, all of the characters are fairy tale characters. There are two original characters known as the Baker and the Baker's wife. But outside of that, all of the characters are icons that you would most like Likely recognize. So Cinderella longs to attend the King's Festival. Jack hopes his cow, Milky White, will provide milk. Little Red Riding Hood seeks bread for her ailing grandmother, and the baker and his wife, who I I just mentioned a second ago, they dream of having a child. So a witch who lives next door to the baker and his wife uh, pays them a visit and reveals to the baker how long ago her vegetable garden was raided by a man gathering food for his pregnant wife. This man, the thief, was the baker's father, uh, cursed with ugliness by her mother as a result of the man's theft of magic beans, he took magic beans from this vegetable garden. The witch decided to dole out some punishments of her own, cursing the man's family with infertility and stealing his daughter. So this child that she stole away, this child was locked away in a tower and named Rapunzel, and as a result of this infertility curse, uh, presumably the baker and the baker's wife will never be able to have children. Ah, unless there is a solution. The witch offers them a reprieve. So, since the baker and the wife, uh, <laughs> I love how ugh, it kind of kills me how we have the baker and his wife. I wish she had a name. You know, all the other characters have names. We could have given the baker and his wife, more importantly, names. Uh, but, you know, it's a fairy tale, so I guess we're supposed to just go with this sort of uh, broad characterization. So, since the baker and his wife wish to have this curse reversed, obviously they agree to gather four ingredients so the witch can brew a potion. The cow, as wife as milk, the cape as red as blood, the hair as yellow as corn, and the slipper as pure as gold. If they can collect these materials in three midnights' time, the curse will be lifted and the witch will become beautiful once more." Now, Act One is filled with a high number of complications. Lapine describes the show in one of my research sources as being fundamentally a farce. That's how he describes uh, the show, which I never considered until this week. Uh, so highlights of Act One include Little Red meets and is eaten along with her grandmother by a wolf. Cinderella and Rapunzel meet their respective princes. Uh, Jack comes into the possession of the magic beans, which allow him to access the Roman of the giants via beanstalk and profit off the riches he finds there. Pursued by a giant, Jack chops down the beanstalk and thereby kills the creature. The baker and his wife grow closer during their pursuit of the witch's ingredients, and all the while, a character known in the script, the book, as the mysterious man, comments on and assists the characters. Act one ends with the family curse lifted, the witch losing her magic as a result of becoming beautiful, and happy ending "'being served to everyone who is deserving of them. "'Meanwhile, as the curtain comes down, "'a second beanstalk begins to grow in the distance, "'and as the narrator intones, he says, "'to be continued.'" Now, Act 2 is much more somber and heady in comparison to Act 1, which is why most school productions cut it entirely. The school version of the show ends definitively on the happy endings of Act 1. So in Act 2, Catastrophe falls upon the cast of characters when a giantess comes crashing into their world, hell-bent on exacting her revenge on Jack. Her husband, the giant, was killed by Jack, and so she has a bloodlust. She is ready to kill Jack as a result of his actions. Other complications from Act 2 include uh, the princes are found to be having affairs with Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. The narrator, the baker's wife, Jack's mother, Rapunzel, and Little Red Riding Hood's mother and grandmother are all Killed Either as a result of the giantess's rampage, or the panic said rampage in sights. The baker and the mysterious man, who we learn is the former's long-absent father, confront and learn from each other. And in the end, the giantess is defeated, she is killed. Though the baker and Cinderella warn Jack and Little Red that the violence cannot continue. They must instead grieve for those who have been lost, learn from what has happened, and help each other to should be better in the future and they form this really great uh, non-traditional family unit uh, in the end jack little red the baker and cinderella uh, they come together in order to help each other and they decide that they're going to live, live with each other as this family i think it's really beautiful that that final decision on the part of those characters so that's my very quick plot breakdown of into the woods i do have a lot of miscellaneous thoughts right up top in regards to theme so let's talk about those, oh, uh, well, I'd say right now. Yeah, I like the idea of that. Into the Woods is primarily about how parent-child relationships affect our ability to sustain healthy relationships. If we are lucky enough to have parents who are kind, patient, and take their roles seriously, we stand a good chance of becoming a solid friend, neighbor, and romantic partner to those around us. If our parents are comparatively overprotective, withholding, and toxic— it's likely going to stunt our development. Sondheim revealed to Time magazine in 1987 how the character of the baker who in Act two is uncomfortable around his child was a fair representation of his own father whereas the baker's wife, who enjoys the idea of a life outside of her family represented his mother. Stephen listened Mr. and mrs. Sondheim yes, that's what I'm taking from this interview. He was a child and he listened he saw he He observed. He absorbed. It's very sad to think about that, isn't it? (laughs) That Sondheim saw his parents that way, and that's how they're represented in Lapine's book. Oh, it it does kind of break my heart a little bit. But more than the parent-child stuff, I feel Into the Woods is about how we as individuals and a society respond to violence and tragedies. Who do we blame? Who, Who should we blame? Ourselves? the perpetrators, the system that created or enabled the perpetrators? Who decides when and how justice is carried out? Should we prioritize forgiveness and rehabilitation, or adopt some sort of ancient eye-for-an-eye an eye policy when it comes to serving justice? As we're told several times throughout the show, enemies like wolves and giants have families and partners and goals and dreams and wishes of their own, so who is anyone to decide their lives matter less? Little Red is arguably the character who grapples with these questions the most, evolving from a naive child who blames herself for being attacked to a hardened, bloodthirsty Avenger, and then finally one of the few people who empathizes with the plight of the giantess. That ideological tug of war is what pushes into the woods into the realm of true greatness for me. Let's talk more about the giantess, though. I think it's strange. How a lot of people, this comes up I feel every time Into the Woods is the topic of conversation. I think it's strange how a lot of people assume the giantess is a metaphor for the AIDS epidemic. And a lot of people just assume that they they kind of state it in such a way like, yeah, you didn't know that? If you've ever heard this argument, you'll know how insistent some of these people can be. Sondheim has flatly stated This was never his intention. A direct quote, uh, When Into the Woods first came out, people felt the giant in it was symbolic of AIDS. We never meant this to be specific. The trouble with fables is everyone looks for symbolism. Quote, Now, clearly everyone is allowed to have their own interpretation of a work of art, uh, but here's why this particular interpretation doesn't track at all for me. So, The appearance of the giantess and the havoc she unleashes are the result of one character's actions. You know, Jack brings giants into our world because he's selfish, lacking empathy, and unable or unwilling to consider the results of his actions. The giantess, unlike AIDS, doesn't appear out of nowhere. We know her origin. We know why she's here. And also, unlike AIDS, she's not a threat that is amorphous and thus nearly impossible to defeat. On the contrary, despite her intimidating nature, her threat level is actually swiftly and accurately evaluated, and she is definitively snuffed out by the end of Act 2. So, enough with the AIDS metaphor, I think right as the comparisons make it seem as if the disease is something we brought on ourselves. This ain't the giant. We we brought the giant into our world. We didn't bring AIDS into the world. It's not like we were asking for it with our actions. You know, I think that's like that sounds kind of shitty and sex negative when you start really picking that apart. When you try to you know untangle that knot, it's that it, it, this this metaphor doesn't fucking work. So enough already. If we're gonna. Have the giant test represent anything. It should be the concept of endless warfare, the idea that reactionary violence only contributes to a vicious cycle if no one is willing to call for a ceasefire. This is much more in line with what is clearly on the page in Le book. But if you want an alternative, why not compare the giantess to climate change? We definitely brought that on ourselves by prioritizing luxury over consequence, and its earth-shattering effects can take any of us down in the blink of an eye, like the giantess. Unfortunately, we can't take out climate change with a bonk to the noggin, so it's not a perfect metaphor. Look, no metaphor is perfect. Uh-huh, right? We can sit here picking holes into each other's theories all day. Okay? So I'm gonna I'm gonna call for a ceasefire. Truce, I'm gonna call for a truce, 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 fantastic. One could very easily read into the woods as a treatise on how men demean, abandon, and brutalized women. I don't think it would take a lot of work uh, to find the evidence in this book. Uh, I did the work, so let's, let's get a rundown on how every female character is affected negatively by men. That's right. That's what we're doing right now. Little Red, attacked and eaten by the wolf. Little Red's grandmother, eaten by the wolf and killed by the giantess, who was only stomping around because of Jack, a man. I blame Jack. The blood is on his house. Little Red's mother, also killed by the giantess. The baker's wife is Routinely dismissed by the Baker She is abandoned by Cinderella's Prince and she dies By falling into a crevice during an earthquake Caused by the giantess who, again, is only here because of Jack. The witch is robbed by the baker's father, which she describes in the lyrics as a rape. Uh, One could argue her actions are a bit much uh, in comparison uh, to what actually happened, but she was robbed. I mean, I can't deny that. A man did rob her. Uh, So moving on. Jack's mother abandoned by her husband and killed by the steward. Cinderella is ignored by a drunk father and betrayed by an unfaithful husband, her prince. Cinderella's mother's uh, grave, her Grave is destroyed during the rampage of the giantess. Cinderella's stepmother, uh, so after the destruction of the royal family's castle, she is led around by her drunk husband and the steward, who are both fools. Cinderella's stepsisters, Florinda and Lucinda, mutilate themselves to please a man and are ultimately blinded by birds. Now, I can't confirm it, there's no evidence of this, but I have a feeling those birds were dudes. <laughs> and uh, Rapunzel is betrayed by an unfaithful husband as well. She is trampled by the giantess. Uh, most of her pain comes as a result of the witch's actions, but men aren't doing her any favors. That that's, that's pretty clear. And finally, the giantess herself, she is the only female character who actively fights against the actions of a male character. And for her efforts, she is also killed. So <laughs> a lot to take in. The men in the story... Kind of get off fairly easy when it comes to uh, actual pain, you know, physical pain, emotional pain. That the the baker has to go through a lot of emotional uh, grief. He, He does. He deals with grief, but I would say that's. I would say that's better than getting. (laughs) I I think that's better than getting tossed into a crevice like his wife. I know it's not his fault that she got thrown into a fucking earthquake crevice, but I I don't know. The the men, you got it easy. You got it fucking easy, and into the woods. I'll just say that once more. Now, for the purposes of researching this episode, I listened to the 1987 original Broadway cast album. I watched the 1988 Tony Awards performance, uh, which features Angela Lansbury. She's introducing the cast, but. She is also acting in that role, uh, the character of the narrator. And Felicia Rashad, uh, best known, I I would think, as Mrs. Huxtable from The Cosby Show, Uh, she is the witch uh, in this Tony Awards performance. Lily also sent me—oh, Lily! I I can't believe— Lily, thank you very much for, again, recommending this show. She was instrumental in my uh, research and putting my notes together for this show. Uh, She sent me footage of Rashad singing Last Midnight, and she's great. So thank you, Lily, for sending me that clip. I watched the 1989 recording of the Broadway cast. Uh, this was for PBS's American Playhouse series. Uh, this is what I'm sure many of you have watched throughout the years. This is available on DVD. You can get it on iTunes. And it is available in full on YouTube. Normally, I would be a little uh, uncomfortable about watching something like that on YouTube. But it's if it's there, I, I, think it's, I think it's been up there for years. So I wouldn't feel guilty about watching it necessarily. Uh, that's fantastic. I've seen that many, many times. But I rewatched it. Watched it this week. I also listened to the 1991 original London cast album. I found the prologue from that London production uh, also available on YouTube, and I was absolutely captivated by the scenic design represented there. Uh, so whereas the Broadway production th- that 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 show went big, right? It went big to provide glossy costuming and this you know very large scale imposing wood. Uh, but London served solid white geometric shapes. The set is very abstract and very cold and haunting. It's like you were in a, a doctor's office or a waiting room. Uh, they, they're also providing these crisp paper-like costumes. I remember Jack specifically is wearing what looks to be like a triangular sort of pyramid newspaper hat cap. It's great. And everyone is is, is wearing hyper-harsh doll makeup. Uh, Tessa Burbridge as Red Riding Hood looks a lot like Daniel Radcliffe slash Harry Potter. It's the glasses. And I, I, I know this isn't an original thought. I think one of the first YouTube comments makes that clear. Makes a joke about that. But I do think it's very funny. Uh, uh, the Baker's Wife as a second Harry Potter reference here. The B- Baker's Wife in the London production is played by Imelda Stanton, best known for playing Dolores Umbridge in the Harry Potter franchise. Fact! I am not done when it comes to these research sources, by the way. So I I listened to the 2002 Broadway revival cast album. Uh, This is the album that features Vanessa Williams in the role of the witch. A little too hammy for my taste as the witch. Uh, That's just, you know, my humble opinion. I-M-H-O, I-M-H-O. This show also, this version of Into the Woods features two wolves and Three Little Pigs. Uh, not a fan of the pigs. I watched a clip of the pigs on stage. Very, oh boy, I got instantly, that my hackles went up. I didn't like them at all. It crosses a line for me somehow, and it makes me think of Shrek. I know, I know this was all way before Shrek, but no pigs. I think, just no pigs. If you're gonna direct the show, get rid of them. J- I, I don't care. Get rid of the fucking pigs. Skip this album and stick with the original and London albums instead. There's a lot of lyric changes for this 2002 version that I'll go into them a little bit more as we go on, but nothing serves the show it doesn't help the show at all it only hinders it so again skip this album stick with the first two i also watched the 2002 broadway revival tony's performance don't bother watching that i'll just say it don't bother watching that it is so poorly staged everyone is just Running around, running from stage left to stage right, upstage to downstage, it's 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 completely confusing. It's a mess. It's a mess. And the cameras for the Tony ceremony, no one is able to film it or capture it with any sense of coherence. And so those two factors together, it's it's mind boggling. I I was I got vertigo watching that that awful staging. In regards to Rob Marshall's 2014 film adaptation, I wasn't able to rent this from the library in time. It was in transit, of course. the time of my recording right here and now it's available for me to pick up so it didn't come in in time i i have seen it once before though it was it was more than a few years ago but i re-watched a few clips i watched the trailer i avoided the johnny Depp material for very obvious reasons cinematically i recall that film as being lush as hell but like many stage to screen adaptations a special theatrical spark gets lost in the translation i'm not totally convinced this show was ever meant to be a film in all honesty, so that those are my thoughts on, those are my chief thoughts on the Rob Marshall film. And then finally, the last uh, research source that I employed here was a video known as Into the Woods MTI Conversation Piece with Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine. Again, these titles, they just roll off the tongue, don't they? They're like, ooh, it's like liquid silver, it's just so rich, and oh, you just love saying it, Into the Woods MTI Conversation Piece with Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine i'll say it once more in, into the <laughs> i'll say it again into the woods mti conversation piece with steven sondheim and james Levine. <laughs> It just, oh, it makes me, it's like a warm quilt being wrapped around me. So this is the video you received at a certain point. I I don't think that you would receive this still. Maybe you do. Uh, It's a video that you would have received after securing the rights to produce the show regionally. And in this video, Sondheim is so charming and so parental and warm. He's explaining how his music is constructed and how it should be played uh, and led by the musical director. So he's giving the musical director uh, tips, essentially. Whereas Lapine is so dry and nerdy and awkward. You can just almost see the, the the flakes of dandruff on his shoulders. He's so white and boring. He mentions in early stage reading, I was fascinated by this, where everyone wore baseball caps bearing their character names. What? is it with Sondheim shows and character names on clothing? Thank God. I, this was, I'm sure this was never meant to survive beyond this particular reading, but this cat nonsense, uh, I'm glad that it didn't because we, we may have wound up with another merrily we roll along on our hands and no one wanted that. No one wants character names on clothing. We're not stupid. Just do the work acting wise and directing wise. We'll be able to distinguish who is who trust me. I love the idea. I'm the witch. You can tell I'm the witch because my cap says the witch. Get it? Yes. Do you think I'm a fucking ignoramus? Yes, we do. There is also a great moment from this video. It's around the 42 minute mark uh, on the YouTube upload where Lepine and Sondheim, so they're sitting in this bizarre living room and they're both on separate couches and in front of them there, there is this giant coffee table covered with big coffee table style books. Big, big books. And they're sitting casually right? They're sitting, you know, back against the, the back of the couch, kind of pretending badly. Neither of these men are actors, but they're pretending to be casual. And you can tell, because we, we watch them, there's some voiceover during this, but there's there's like a few seconds where they're just sitting, staring straight ahead dead as robot zombies, and then you it's so obvious that a director or someone behind the camera snapped their fingers, and they both bolt forward at the exact same time as if they're on springs in a Tex Avery cartoon. They spring forward forward, lean forward, and just open up random books, pointing at books, pointing at the page, and vaguely talking, like, uh, yes, mumble mumble, this book. Mumble mumble, what about this book? Oh, but did you see this book over here? It's amazing. It's amazing. I think we're supposed to believe that they're collaborating, but it's so unnatural. You gotta watch it. Again, it's around the 42-minute mark, uh, and I I forget how I found this, but just, I can't search for Into the Woods tea, a conversation piece with Steve and Sondheim and James Lepine. <laughs> kinda worked. That joke kinda worked. Of course, now is the point in the show when we must discuss the score of the songs of Into the Woods, the prologue. Once upon a time.
1: I wish in a far-off kingdom, more than anything lived a fair maiden mine, a sad young land. And a childless baker. More than life, I wish with his more wife. More than anything, more than the moon. I wish the king is giving a festival. More than life, I wish. I wish to go to the festival. More than riches. Of I wish my cow would give us some milk. More than anything, I wish we had a child. Please, pal. child. Squeeze, pal. I wish to go to the festival. I, I, I wish to give us a wish for I wish, I wish.
0: Yes! One of the best openings for a show. Sondheim, in this opening number, he takes the concept of an I Want song and with the prologue declares Into the Woods as an I Want show. That's all that the show is about. Wanting, grasping, striving, just reaching and leaning and wanting those dreams and those wishes so damn bad. It is the absolute strongest spine in the show. Everyone is driven into the woods to make their dreams a reality and the adventurous quest-seeking spirit of this opening is is what gets me every time. It has the same bravado, really, as an I, Don Quixote. I would compare it to I, Don Quixote. I, I know I've already expounded on theme quite a bit uh, here, but I'm all about the woods standing as just a very simple symbol of the world, right? That's obvious. The big, wide, scary, often dangerous as hell, but occasionally and beautifully rewarding World, Everyone is wary of venturing into it as it puts them at risk, right? And yet we must engage with the wood and the world. The wood and the world is where we find ourselves. Uh, this is also where we get the witch rap, uh, which Sondheim, in the MTI conversation piece video, he insists in that video that this is not a rap. Oh yeah, Stephen? Uh, tell that to the drum machine, the craziest computer. Of your score. It was
1: greens, greens, and nothing but greens, parsley, peppers, cabbages, and celery, asparagus, and waterpress, and fetter birds and lettuce, he said, alright. But it wasn't quite, cause I caught him in the autumn in my garden one night. He was robbing me, bathing me, putting through my ruler bag, I'm my own, i ripping up the ra-
0: I love and I am completely baffled by the drum machine. I the drum machine is even more prominent on the London recording, if you can believe it. I say beef it up. That's that's where I wind up landing. Beef up the drum machine, either go big with it or cut it entirely, which the 2014 film finally did. I believe I don't remember the do 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 do. I don't remember that from the 2014 film. I I felt more for Jack's mother this week listening to these recordings than I ever have. I saw her in a brand new light. You know, her house is crumbling all around her. They don't have money or food. And her husband is nowhere to be found. I'm really focused. I'm, I'm always really ready to hear that lyric, your father's not back. I, I, I'm mystified by it. Uh, this is another example of an absent father. Jack's father is just gone. He's not dead. He's just left them. He's abandoned them. Uh, I think it would be a mistake to play Jack's mother as dotty, you know, overly comedic, or badgering and mean-spirited. I think that's a little easy. I think you should play her as human as possible. We should clearly understand how much she loves and wants to protect Jack, this very absent-minded boy of hers. We need to know that from moment one. I think the humor will come. I don't think you need to push the humor of Jack's mother. I think that will come but I th- there has to be a warm beating heart you, you you really can't compare her to the witch the witch is very abusive when it comes to her you know stolen daughter Rapunzel there's a lot of yelling and, and nagging and screaming and badgering on the witch's end I don't think we should see that mirrored in Jack's mother that, that we should get a completely different dynamic from her that's just my IMHO <laughs> I need to stop saying this whole podcast is IMHO so <laughs> I think that's we just need to let that go. Lapine in that conversation PCMTI video also said that he wanted to cast Walter Cronkite as the narrator, and he generally recommends to regional productions that they cast a local newscaster or politician, like the mayor, I guess, is what he's trying to go for. I'm No, um, an outdoor Central Park Delacorte theater production from 2012 conceptualized the narrator as a kid, this small boy who's avoiding his parents by escaping in a fantasy. And and again, he's the narrator. So he's, he's dictating the terms of the story. That's a little too time bandits for my taste. We don't need to be messing around with the narrator all that much. Just get an adult you know, with good diction, who exudes both authority and warmth. And here's a crazy idea. I haven't seen an example of this. There has to be a regional example somewhere. Cast a woman as the narrator. I- I'm just saying, it doesn't have to be some tweedy guy who's balding and has glasses. We- we've done that. The guy from the original, the guy, I could look this up. I'm, no. <laughs> the guy from the original Broadway production and the actor from the 2002 revival, they could be brothers. They look exactly the same. Let's try something else. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, let's try something else. One final note on this prologue. I don't like how in the 2002 revival, they add the... Ooh, I don't know how the melody goes. Uh, da, 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 da. There's something in the glade there. Ooh, I'm not getting it right at all. But they add these oohs. It's odd. It's distracting. And it puts a little bit too fine a point on the characters being spooked by the woods. We get it. You wrote these fantastic lyrics. They are intimidated by the woods. The woods are dangerous. They're mysterious. We don't need everybody going, ooh, the woods. Spooky. It's fine. Leave it alone.
2: Think of those crisp, aging bones and something fresh on the palate. Think of that scrumptious carnality twice in one day. There's no possible way to describe what you feel when you're talking to your me. (laughs) Goodbye, little girl. And hello.
0: Ah yes, hello little girl. The wolf as a character is one of the many components directors have tried to sexualize over the years. Lepine included his work uh, with the original Broadway production involved creating this costume design for the wolf and you'll you'll see this if you go and you watch that PBS American Playoff series recording of that show. So the, the original costume design for the wolf in, included this truly crazy, hyper detailed, wolf cock and i'm not kidding if you've never seen this before it's like black furry balls just straight up balls testicles and this sort of just limp but thick like thick flaccid cock it just hangs right there and it's not wagging around like you know it's not wagging around like truck nuts in alabama but it's right there It's blending in with the rest of the fur, but at the same time, it's popping out. It just, it it has a presence on stage. The cock is kind of its own character. And the, the wolf also has these humanoid, human flesh abs. He has like a fucking eight pack and human nipples. And he's got like cum gutters. It's crazy (laughs) the wolf can simply be a wild animal we don't need him to be horny we don't need to imply that he wants to fuck little red stop it on a related note why does the original costume for jack include a giant cock pouch just this big cock pouch And why is the witch constantly tasering the baker's cock with her wicked magic for comedic relief? What the fuck is with cocks in the original production? Enough with the cocks! No more cocks! Now, I obviously understand the thematic point of including two wolves in this moment during the hello, little girl number. It's obvious. It's meant to be a mirror of the two princes that we get later on in the show and their similarly lusty appetites. But it all seems way too busy. Again, I watched the version with the two wolves on YouTube. You can watch a bootleg of that entire production as well. That is not well filmed. I wouldn't recommend it. The audio is not great. So, But I, I wanted to get a glimpse of the two wolves interacting with the pigs and stuff. It doesn't interest me. One wolf is fine. Just clear the stage. Minimization, right? That's, the, that's kind of the big thing in being a director, I think. Minimizing. You might have a lot of ideas, and you might think you know how to improve the show, Maybe trust the show more than you trust yourself. I don't know. This is a tricky little bit of philosophy I'm throwing out, but clear the deck, clear the table, clean. Ooh, before I forget, costume idea for the wolf. Get rid of the cock and the nipples and the cum gutters and the abs. Why not have goggles, right? Big red goggles? Might be a little too bug-like uh, if they're too big, but I just like the uh, the idea of him having these sort of alien-esque red eyes. So just like small red goggles. This might be the stupidest thing I've ever said on this podcast, and you might be thinking, that's stupid, and that's fair, but I would just like to see what it looks like. I would, I would want that. Red goggles? Maybe I need to clear this out. Clear the day get rid of the goggles. I don't know. I'm panicking.
1: Magic beans. No one would have given him more for this creature. Are we to dispel this curse through deceit? If you know what you want, then you go and you find it and you get it. Home. Do we want a child or not? And you give and you take and you bid and you bargain or you live to regret it. Will you please go home? There are rights and wrongs and in-betweens. No one waits when fortune intervenes. And maybe there What you do, that's the point. All the rest of it is chatter. Look at her. She's crying. If the thing you do is pure in intent, if it's meant and it's just a little bent, does not matter? Yes. No, what matters is that everyone tells tiny lies. What's important really is the size. Only three more times.
0: It was during my re listen, I was re listening to maybe their magic. Uh, I realized all over again how Joanna Gleason is the secret weapon of the original cast. It makes total sense that she won a Tony Award for her performance as the baker's wife. She is so, again, warm. That's harder than you would think to exude on stage. That's, I mean, that's really, that's gonna be a lifeline between you and the audience if you can establish yourself as someone who is warm someone that wants you know if you if they could they would embrace you and you would want to be embraced by them and that's what that's what she exudes as the baker's wife she's also just so quick with the delivery of the of the lines in the book and she is so scrappy she makes the baker's wife so scrappy it's amazing i especially like her delivery in the pbs recording of you forgot your scarf <laughs> <laughs> she says that to the baker. It's it's just, it's a really good, really good comedic moment from her. Uh, have you seen the PBS recording yet? Just stop the podcast. Watch it in full. It's two and a half hours. I know that's a big investment for your time. But if you haven't, you gotta. You, you just gotta. It's homework. It's homework, kids. <laughs> kids? Yes. Snap, snap. Homework? <laughs> it's on youtube go for it uh everyone should be a fan of the baker's wife by the time she declares if the end is right it justifies the beans if you ain't got them on your side by then you ain't got them <laughs> you ain't got them i know it's hard to know but you'll actually you will know they'll they'll love that line if they love you so good luck to everyone who plays the baker's wife it's the best character in the show best character in the show. So go for it and give it everything you got. Am I in the MTI conversation piece right now with Sondheim and Lapine? Am I one of the jungle plants sitting behind Sondheim during his interview at The Piano? He is surrounded. I don't know if they were trying to get... uh, They they put all these books behind Lapine as if he's like the narrator, maybe. He's like the keeper of the keys, the the master of the story. And then I think Sondheim, this is nuts to consider, but he is surrounded surrounded by all these gigantic plants. And I guess that's supposed to be the woods. But it looks like a jungle. It looks like a set from the Golden Girls. Let's be... (laughs) Miami is nice, so I'll say it twice. Miami is nice. Miami.
2: Mother said straight ahead, not to delay or be misled. I should have heeded her advice, but he seemed so nice. Scared.
0: I Know Things Now is Little Red's big number in act one. It is also the example of unnecessary sexualization number two. I have three examples of this. The first, of course, was the wolf. And this is the second. Now, did, did anyone else have, if you've worked on the show, if you've done any numbers from it, maybe if you're a theater major currently or if you were one in the past like me, did anyone else have a director or a professor who tried to make this song About a sexual awakening? Isn't that fucking weird? I I hope at least one person knows what I'm talking about. I distinctly recall an actor in a scene study class, a musical theater scene study class that I took. She was told to explore how Red is semi-aroused by her time with the wolf. Um, newsflash... The song isn't about titillation in the face of danger or getting an STI from a bad boy or whatever the hell. Uh, who came up with this reading this is, This was a gay professor by the way, a gay male professor, and he was just so intrigued he was so he was so fascinated by this interpretation of his no not at, why do, men it's men men want to make everything about sex, and a great deal of theater is about sex. But also, not. I would say, not. You can make other choices. As Liza said, it can go another way. We learned that last week from Liza. Maybe take it to heart.
1: When you weigh up high and you look below at the world you left and the things you know little more than a glance is enough to show you just how small you are. When you weigh up high and you're on your own in the world like none that you've ever known but the sky is lead and the earth is stone you're free to do whatever pleases you exploring things you'd never dare cos you don't care when suddenly there's a big, tall, terrible giant at the door
2: A big, tall,
1: terrible lady giant sweeping the floor And she gives you food and she gives you rest And she draws you close to her giant
2: breast And you know things
1: now that
0: you never Till the sky. And then coming right out of I Know Things Now, we have Giants in the Sky, which is Jack's big number in Act 1. This is the third example of material that is unnecessarily sexualized, and it's all because of one lyric. Men just focus on this one lyric, and she holds you close to her giant breast. Jack is talking about his time with the giantess, how he she drew him close to her giant breast, oh she did... Must we make this sexual? I think Jack enjoys the maternal nature of the giantess, especially because his own mother is kind of hard on him, you know? I think he's in awe of the giantess. But I do not think he wants to suckle her giant breast, you know? I don't think he wants to drown Oedipus-like in her fucking frothy, bubbly milk. All right? I don't think he's going to go down on the giantess's bean. We need to let this go. No, it's right there. It's her breast. A woman's breast is immediately sexual. No! Stop it! While listening to Giants in the Sky, if I may calm down, (laughs) if I may just turn the volume down on myself, Patty, I apologize for spiking the mic. It struck me listening to this song how beyond its outsized prologue where everyone is on stage together, Act One uh, reads like a cabaret review to a certain extent. Characters are singing straight out to the audience, enjoying their time in the spotlight while showcasing their unique experiences. They really are peering through the fourth wall. They are speaking directly to us. It's it's very easy to sort of recontextualize that and, and place them on a small cabaret stage in a small cabaret venue. I mean, it makes sense... As everyone in Act 1 is is in their own little bubble, it's when they're forced to become a community in Act 2 that the characters start turning and singing to each other more regularly. They are truly seeing each other in Act 2, not merely moving past or bumping into each other like they do in the first act. Costume idea, before I forget, for Jack goggles... I know I'm not. This isn't really a bit. I like the idea of big aviator goggles on Jack. Is this dumb? Maybe he would look like Snoopy, the World War II flying ace. The Red Baron. I like goggles, is what I'm trying to say. In general, I don't think you should go too young or too old when casting Jack and Little Red, if I may insert myself into the MTI conversation piece video once more. Uh, Gat Matarazzo of Stranger Things will play Jack in a Hollywood Bowl production this summer that's going to be a concert version of the show. And I think he's about as young as you want to go with Jack. Uh, when Red and Jack are borderline baby children, like they are in the Rob Marshall 2014 film, we begin to edge into straight-up children's theater, and I think that's a mistake. This show plays chiefly to adults. I, I say chiefly. Uh, kids can get so much out of the show in its full version. I don't think they should be given the school edition. Of course, of course, the show has so much to give to children, but I think it is it primarily does play to the expectations and the, the, the context and the knowledge of adults. It, it it upends their previous context for fairy tales. I think I think it plays to them for the most part. So I think it should be told by adults on stage is my point. On the other hand, if you swing too old with Jack and Red, you'll only confuse your audience, I think. Casting, right? It's a Cherokee business, isn't it? Cast me as Jack is what I'm saying. I'm 33, going on 34. I'm turning 34 this year in October, but I still look fairly fresh. Uh-huh. I haven't spoiled yet. huh I'm now a little mummy. Cast me. The lines are open. Patty, keep one hand on that phone, if you please. Thank you very much.
2: Did I abuse her or show her disdain? Why does she run from me? If I should lose her, how shall I regain the heart she has won from me? Agony beyond power of speech. When the one thing you want is the only thing out of your reach. High in her tower, she sits by the hour, maintaining her hair. Lithe and becoming, and frequently humming, all oh light-hearted air. She would go with you if there only were doors. Agony, oh the torture they teach. But as intriguing or half so fatiguing as what's out of reach.
0: to Agony, which is the big duet between uh, the two princes. They get a second uh, they get a reprise of this in the second act, I should say. I respect how no real attempt is made to have the princes grow as human beings, not even in the second act when everyone is growing. Uh, They are entitled, they are these unrepentant jerks who single-mindedly pursue women to score bragging points with each other and they're never going to change, which is scarily realistic on its own when you think about it. I always forget how they are also supposed to be brothers having previously assumed i don't know that they were from distinct royal families or entirely different kingdoms would it be wrong if i as the director of a production of into the woods chose to play up a homoerotic dynamic between the two prince brothers Oh, it would be wrong, wouldn't it? Oh. The line from the reprise in act two of Agony that I really like is, Oh, well, back to my wife. It's it's great. It plays on the last lyric from the initial version of the song. Ooh, it's a great, you don't realize it. It's another nice little surprise from Sondheim, but he sets it up in the first act, and then we get it in the second act. is that, that punchline. It's really, really good. Really good.
1: We've changed. We're straight you in the woods. Who might, what dangers, I know we we'll can pass the woods. And once we're past, let's hope the changes last. Beyond woods, beyond witches and slippers and hoods, just the two of us beyond lies, safe at home with our beautiful prize. Just a few of us It takes trust It It takes takes just just a bit more And we're we're done We we want four We have none We've got three. three We need one It takes
2: two
0: I love how during the song it takes to the resentments and fears of the past are tossed aside thrown out so that the baker and his wife may compliment praise and flirt with each other Chip Zion and Joanna Gleason are the cool parents Who probably smoke pot, right? In my fan fiction, where these actors are married in real life, I mean, uh, I love this song. It takes two. It's one of the best songs in the entire show. And my favorite musical moment from the song is "And once we're past, let's hope the changes." Last, love the harmony. There's there's this soaring, clean, crisp. Paper light optimism. Oh, it just soars. It just floats and floats and floats. And I, the harmony between the baker and his wife in that moment, mm, sticks in my head. And I, I wanted to stay there until my dying day. I do say.
1: What did I clearly say? Children should listen. No,
2: no, please.
1: What were you not to do? Children must see oh. and learn. Why could you not obey? should listen what have i been to you what would you have me be hands up like a
2: prince oh, but I...
0: about Bernadette Peters. I'm glad that this is her second appearance on the podcast. We're going to see her many more times throughout the, the, the podcast uh, time. It's history. I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about her in a context that is not the goodbye girl. Uh, she is fabulous as the witch i should have i should have said that uh, much earlier but she's fat fucking fabulous as the witch really put her stamp her brand on that role for all time and she is going off on the track stay with me during this the number stay with me the witch is an a plus character she exudes a ton of humor and diva dynamicism lapine really does give the actor playing the witch so much to work with but i think we tend to downplay how she is she is an abuser. The witch is convinced she loves and is only acting in the best interest of her daughter when in reality, she is chipping away at her daughter's sanity. She drives Rapunzel to madness. Rapunzel has a rough time in general, doesn't she? I mean, the poor girl gets lost in the desert and then she has she gives birth to twins in the desert. Poor Rapunzel. I feel so sad for her. So while I can't empathize with an average parent who may be afraid to let their child go, I only see the witch as a fucked up menace. I would play her as deeply threatening here during Stay With Me, an anaconda who would rather squeeze the life out of Rapunzel than see her get away for even a moment. Oh, that would be be great to watch.
1: He's a very smart prince He's a prince who prepares Knowing this time I'd run from him He spread pitch on the stairs I was caught on all wares And I thought, well he cares This is more than just malice Better stop and take stock while you're standing You're stuck on the steps of the palace
0: the praise is just going to keep on coming as we talk about on the steps of the palace because I adore the character of Cinderella and her creeping ambivalence, the side eye that she gives to what everyone else assumes is going to be her happy ending. Everyone, the, the baker's wife specifically, makes it quite clear that she would she would kill to be in Cinderella's gold slippers. She wishes that she could, you know, go away with a prince and have this wonderful, wealthy, luxurious life in a palace. But, you know, unlike the royal family, you know, Cinderella knows of hardship and misery. That's not going anywhere. She carries it with her. It's like a stone in her pocket. Even after having escaped the clutches of her stepmother, it is with her, along with the fear that she will always feel like a fraud, a less than, unworthy, undeserving. Cinderella's mother taught her to be kind in a world that is so often cruel. But when she is rewarded for her kindness, it doesn't erase trauma. She, She doesn't know how to truly be happy. It's like when people tell those who are dealing with depression and anxiety, look at where you are. Look at all of the things that you have. This is what people would say to Cinderella. And I think Cinderella actually is a character that you could very easily contextualize as someone who is Dealing with anxiety, De- uh, of course she would be dealing with anxiety and depression. Look where she comes from. She comes from her stepmother's house, where her father is like completely ambivalent, doesn't give a fucking wit about her. So I think that would be a wonderful way to approach the character of Cinderella. But you know, unlike the baker, Cinderella doesn't wither when confronted by life's hardships. She is she's wounded by them and she is scarred and injured, but she doesn't willfully lay down in the face of them when her. Her prince is found to be infidelious, she kicks him to the curb. When her kingdom is in danger, she runs toward that danger, not away from it. And when she sees need in others, she offers her service, not because it's demanded or wrung out of her, not out of some royal obligation, but because it's the right thing to do. But getting back to the song On the Steps of the Palace, I talk a lot about a theme, and I, I do just want to talk about this song. That, that push and pull, that, that indecision that she has in her heart, the, the idea that she doesn't know which way to go is just it's great it's, it's just great isn't it watching her work that out we're watching any actor in the role of Cinderella work that out should just be such a delight it's it's a it's a great back and forth the baker's wife has her own sort of push and pull in the second act I like watching characters deal with that indecision that's what life is all about that that struggle to really know if the decision you're going to make is the right one the best one for you the 2002 version of this song Really does disservice to the original material. Again, Sondheim crafted this wonderful piece of musical theater, and the 2002 version shoehorns Jack and Red into the tail end of what should just be Cinderella's special moment. Let's just hear that now.
2: And you've learned something too, and I've learned something too, something you never knew. And I've learned something too that, that I never never, 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 never knew before. The Land of the, the
0: world, Again, this is yet another example of the revival being a little much overall. Again, I can see the logic behind the change. You know, let's bind these similarly confessional character numbers into a neat package, thereby branding them as a trio, making it seem as if that's what we always meant to do way back in the day. Now we finally get to make this change. But that change, it trips up the number right as it's about to cross the finish line. Let Cinderella have her time. We're not in any danger of forgetting about Jack or Little Red. We're well aware of them. We like those characters too. They'll come together. You wrote this great book, Lapine, Sondheim, this show together. You wrote it very well, so don't worry about it. The act one finale is known as Ever After. Here, the fairy tale characters can be at their most whimsical and fanciful. The book is closing, all is well, and all will be well for the rest of recorded time, at least in the minds of the characters.
2: And it came to pass, all that seemed
1: wrong was now right, and those who deserved to were certain to live a long and happy life. Ever after. Ever after. Journey over. All is mended. And it's not just for today, but tomorrow and extended. Ever after. Ever after. All the curses have been ended. The reverses wiped away. All is tenderness and laughter for forever after. Remember, this is how the pants would often swerve. but they never lost their nerve, and
2: they
0: reached the right conclusion. And we what we I and isn't that odd? I just I want to talk about it again. Sondheim and Lapine know they know they know that children shouldn't grow up thinking their lives will one day be free of hassle, and yet they signed off on this ending for the school edition. No, tisk tisk, my boys, tisk tisk.
1: That's what woods are for. For those moments in the woods. Let the moment go. Don't forget it for a moment, though. Just remembering you've had an ant when you're back to ore. Makes the ore mean more than it did before.
2: Now I
0: I'm just going to repeat the lyrics that you heard in that clip. I know, it's, I know it's redundant to do so, but I love them so much. Must it all be either less or more, either plain or grand? Is it always or? Is it never and? And then later the baker's wife sings, Let the moment go. Don't forget it for a moment, though. Just remembering you've had an and when you're back to or makes the or mean more than it did before. I realize context is probably key here. So at this point in the show, the baker's wife has encountered Cinderella's prince and they have shared this passionate moment of it. They have embraced, they have kissed, they have made out passionately like teenagers. And she's fantasizing about what it would mean to live a life other than her own. But in thinking about it, weighing all of her options, she realizes that at the end of the day, she does want to be with the baker. She does care about him, her child, and the family, the home that they have developed. And that arc is really amazing. Moments in the Woods is is one of my... I have said this several times, but it's one of many favorite songs for me in this show. And I love the Baker's Wife. I'm going to say it again. Uh, everyone should be on board for her at this moment. And when she is taken from us, when she dies, mere moments after this song, Moments in the Wood, uh, we should feel shocked and... Uh, completely wounded and taken aback. Her death makes something quite clear that no one is safe, not even our favorite characters. And in the PBS recording, Joanna Gleason gets a really big extended ovation after Moments in the Wood, and by God, if she doesn't deserve it, I believe I have this right. The PBS recording was a sort of reunion for that original cast. Uh, They they brought everyone back together so that they could uh, specifically film it for PBS, and I think the audience is really on board. They're really excited to have those, those people back together and I think that's why we get some of these really big ovations but Joanna Gleason again completely deserving of it what a treasure
1: it's because of you there's a giant in our midst and my wife is dead
0: it is it my fault I was given those beans You persuaded me to trade away my cow for beans And without those beans that have been no stock to get up to the giants in the first place Wait a minute, magic. magic beans for a cow so old That you had to tell a lie to sell it which you told Were they worthless beans? Were they oversold? Oh, and tell us who persuaded you to steal that gold
2: See, it's your fault No, so it's your fault No, yes, it is. it's not It's true Wait a minute, but I only stole the gold
0: to get my cow back from you So it's your fault Yes. No, it isn't. I'd have kept those beans, but our house was cursed. She made us get a cow to get the curse reversed. It's your father's fault
1: that the curse got placed and the place got cursed in the first place. Oh, then it's his so fault. It was his fault. No. Yes, it is. It's his. I guess. Wait a minute. Though no, I chopped out <laughs> the beanstalk, right, that's clear, but without any beanstalk, then what's clear is how
2: did the second time get down here in the first <laughs> place, second place? Yeah, how? Mm. Well, who had the other bean? The other bean. The other bean? You pocketed the other bean. I didn't. Yes, I did. So it's yours. No, it isn't, because I gave it to my wife. So it's yours.
1: No, it isn't. What is it? Wait a minute, she exchanged. That bean to obtain your shoes, so the one who knows what happened to the bean is you. You I mean that old bean that your wife? Oh dear, but I never knew, and so I do. Well, don't look here. So it's oh, but See, it's her fault, and know. it isn't mine at all. But what? Well, if you hadn't gone back up again, we were needy. You were greedy. Did you need that hair? But I got it from my mother. So it's her fault then. You forgot about the harp in the third room. The harp, yes.
0: Wait, dare me too? I dare you no too. Dare me too? She said that I was scared. Did she dare? No. I So it's your fault. Wait a minute. And you had left the harp alone, it
2: wouldn't be a in, in the first place. To yes. the first place. You're you're responsible. You're to it's <sighs> your fault.
0: I want to be in a production of Into the Woods, if only so I can deliver one of the, wait a minute, declarations from your fault. Again, I am more than ready to play Jack. Uh, Lines are open. I don't believe I'm old enough to play the baker. I would like to play that character. But if I need to wait another decade or so for that, I'll take Jack. I'll take Jack. Thank you very much. I love the shh from The Witch. Who doesn't? Ooh, one of the best moments from The Witch. Shh. And then you're so nice, you're not good, you're not bad, you're just nice. I'm not good, I'm not nice, I'm just right. I'm the witch. You're the world. I can't get enough of the witch reading everyone to filth. Everyone loves that part, right? That's one of the most obvious things to like about Into the Woods. That It's one of the best fucking lyrics in the entire show. Uh, P.S. Much thanks again to Lily for sending me the clip of Donna Murphy singing Last Midnight during the 2012 Central Park Delacorte Theater production. Uh, Little Red, it should be said, is conceptualized in that production as this scruffy sort of Avril Lavigne skateboard kid and her hood is actually, her red hood is this bright, shiny red helmet. I kind of like it. It's very funky and weird. Uh, Shortly after this number, there is an astounding book moment where the baker admits how his wife was better than him in every way, how he depended on her for everything, how she was the one who kept their family afloat. We need the baker to abandon his ego once and for all in that moment if he's ever going to change for the better. And so I'm all about that moment. I didn't want to leave that out. The book, it really is fantastic. I, I was really going heavy on making fun of Lapine, uh, his, his dorkiness earlier, but it, 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 it is great. No more giants waging war. Can't we
1: just pursue our lives with our children and our wives?
2: Till that happy day arrives,
1: how do you ignore all the witches, all the curses, all the wolves, all the lies,
2: the false hopes, the goodbyes, the reverses, all the wondering what even worse is still in store?
1: All the children, all the giants.
2: No.
0: If Into the Woods is a farce, as Lapine would assert, the baker during No More is the character who becomes most aware of his existence within a farce. A farce, like life, if you want to get cynical about it, bats its characters around, forcing them into desperate corners on several occasions. Characters in a farce never enjoy peace for long because the earth is always falling out from under them. We laugh, but they suffer, and the baker no longer wishes to participate. He rails against the conventions of his own story. Twists, downfalls, secrets, lies, absurdities. What's the point of living if you're at their mercy? But as his father, the strange, mysterious man, warns running from life's madness will only diminish you more, and choosing to leave people behind only damages them further. So why not own up to your responsibilities? Why are you damaging other people by leaving? Help them instead. It's not as if they won't help you in return. I mean, such is life, right? Offering aid, exhibiting kindness, surviving to tell the tale. Definitely, I keep saying this, definitely one of my favorite songs, No More. I love that anger that the baker exhibits and displays and expresses. He's so he's so furious at the loss of his wife. He is being choked by grief and sadness and he just wants to give up oh what a what a juicy chunk of acting that you get to experience on on stage and, ex- and and watch from the audience's point of view it should be this wonderful moment the held note at the end of how do you ignore is so openly raw and mournful Ugh, so good Sometimes- Uh, When Little Red says, I wish, and Cinderella says, I know, during No One Is Alone. It's so sad. (laughs) It's so sad and great. No One Is Alone expertly captures the kind of difficult conversation you'd have with a child who is wrestling with tough questions. Of the many lessons imparted in the song, No One Is Alone, I especially like how Jack and Red are told they have as much impact on the world as any adult. Even their smallest actions have ripple effects, and so they must never act rashly what a pleasure to get lost in the winding, roundabout wanderings of this song. Again, hard to believe it, along with the entire second act, was cut for the sake of the school edition. Children need to learn about the moral grays of life. They need to learn. I know the I know I said the show chiefly plays to adults, but I'm regretting that even more as I as I keep thinking about it. Bring your kids. Show them that second act is what I say. And then finally we have the finale, Children Will Listen. Once upon a time
1: far-off kingdom lived a young maiden, a sad young lad, and a childless baker with his wife.
2: Careful the things you say, children will listen. Careful the things you do, children will see and learn.
0: The show ends with the baker accepting his dual role as both mother and father to his child. His wife may be gone, but he's able to keep moving because he is and has always been enough. I've used that phrase before, but I, I like it when characters learn that they are enough. No one knows... What may come tearing out of the woods or raining down from above or creeping in from just next door, but in the meantime, everyone will try to prepare, improve, and tend to those who are not themselves, who are unlike themselves, I should say. It's all we can do. The final reprise of Into the Woods during this finale is perfection. I enjoy how the baker sings about seeing a glimmer of light when everyone else fears that the light is diminishing. And then right at the end, we get Cinderella's I Wish. At the Right at the end, it's the final lyric. And it's one final jolt from old Papa Sondheim. The wishing never ends. The story goes on. I have two songs that I want to talk about that are not in the show proper. One of them is Rainbows.
1: That's your idea of reality, isn't it? Life is a mess, so settle for less. Maybe you don't really want to have children. Don't
0: say that. Of course I do. Yes, I want children. I don't think
1: you want the responsibility. I do. I do, but... But?
0: Can't we just be happy the way we are? are we happy? This was written for a field film adaptation developed in the 1990s, more on that later. And it was going to be included in the Rob Marshall 2014 film but was never actually shot. It's a great song. It's a delightful song. It kind of kills me that it was never included. It's for the baker and his wife. So uh, he is convinced he's singing in rainbows about how they should give up on their dream of having a child. Their quest is too tough. And on the flip side of that coin, his wife is sick of how he has always chipped away at their dreams, her dreams specifically, she's tired of settling for less. She wants exactly what she has always dreamed of. And that is her child she wants her child it's pretty and sad complicated like all good songs from into the woods Uh, rainbows should definitely be incorporated i think into the next major revival that we get of into the woods it found a place in the 2012 off-broadway revival of sometimes marry me a little but that's not enough i don't think it should just be tossed into that it deserves a proper place in into the woods i realized a song that i didn't talk about is our little world i had some notes on that but i i i ultimately Ultimately, cut that from my deconstruction. It's just, it's fine, but it's not funny enough to be truly hilarious, and it it doesn't reveal anything that we don't already learn in many other moments from the show. Uh, There's like a nice rapport between Rapunzel and the witch that is later shattered by the witch's abusive behavior. But again, I don't necessarily think it's needed. Again, I think it's gilding the lily. So, in my opinion, I would probably lift that out and instead put in rainbows. If you're going to add to the of the show, put in rainbows instead. But I also want to talk about the song, She'll Be Back. She'll be back. Next to me, who is he? She'll be back. She'll be back.
1: She's a fool. She just thinks she'll be free. We shall see. Free is one thing she never will be. Every place that she goes, every face, every rose,
2: everything that she does, she'll remember what was. And she'll want to come home. She'll be back. You'll be
0: back. This was written and shot for the 2014 film, though it was cut and made available as a deleted scene, which you can find on YouTube. It's a nice enough moment for the witch who in the film in in this moment in the film has lost Rapunzel to Rapunzel's Prince the prince has taken her away but the song's trajectory is limited it's so it's it's the solo for the witch she is edging into Mama Rose territory here she's you know she's sort of saying ah she'll be back she doesn't know I've worked so hard she doesn't know the world like I do yeah come on she'll be back but the sort of dynamic quality that I'm giving it here that's that's not what's actually done Meryl Streep doesn't play that is what I'm trying to say. She's very calm. She's very simmering. It would have helped if Sondheim had pushed... The dynamic, the Mama Rose dynamic, even further, allowing for higher highs and lower lows. And as it is, the witch is just ignoring her feelings and pretending to be nonplussed by the loss of her daughter. This situation she has found herself in—it's just sort of—it ends on a kind of bland, melancholy note. And we've we've plateaued. We we plateaued emotionally, basically, as the song started. It doesn't go anywhere. So, and, and Streep handily rings a little bit of humor out of the number, but that's about it. That's the song Deconstruction. Yeah, we're done with the song Deconstruction. And now, uh, normally we would get a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee, but instead, we're going to get another musical shout-out. Yes, two weeks in a row we do these musical shout-outs. Fantastic. Uh, We have a new Patreon donor. That's why we're doing this. His name is Aaron. Thank you very much, Aaron, for donating monthly. Oh, we love to have you on board, Aaron. So here we go. Here is your musical shout-out. Take it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's me! Ha <laughs> ha! Adolfo Perelli! Yes, it's me, Adolfo Perelli from Sweeney Todd! Yes, I have it a mustache, I have it a hat, I have it a hands, I have it a tool, I have it a fit, I have it a butt, I have it a cock, I know what to do with it. <laughs> I kid, I kid, even though I am a master of gunalingus. Ha <laughs> ha! I have the tools to pull the tooth. If you don't want the tooth pulled, I say to you, get fucked. I'm going to take your tooth. <laughs> I'm going to take your tooth slightly, and I'm going to pull it, and I'm going to yank it. And I'm going to rip it, and I'm going to lick it. And I'm going to suck it. I'm going to swallow it, and then I'm going to shit it out of my butt. I am Prairie. I'm a very classy gentleman, despite what you may have heard me singing just a moment ago. And I am here uh, to sing about Aaron. Yes, Aaron. This is your Ms. Koshada for you, Mr. Aaron. You are so cool, you are so nice. I say it so nice, I say it twice. <laughs> yes, yes! Look at my mustache, Aaron. How can you not love this little song? I wrote it for you. If you do not like it, here's what you can do. I sit on my face. in right, my place. And my place is this little carnival, uh, little wagon that I like to roll around. And I like to take it to all of the little villages. And I like to... Uh, you can come with me, Erin, if you want. But if you come with me, you will have to sit on my face if you don't like my songs. Okay, it's just... I, it's either way you win, right? You either like the song or you like to fucking sit on my face in my wagon. I like to uh, go to towns and pull on the teeth. I'm also... Pretty Pretty good at shaving, but I recently was embarrassed by Sweeney Todd, who apparently can do well. I guess he can pull teeth better than me too. He's a piece of shit. I want him dead. If I want him dead, I'll take his head, but not today. Okay. And thank you so much for donating to the Patreon. You are silenced. I say it twice. You want to dance? that? Okay, goodbye. It is me, Perry, and I am sick of being here. I must move on to another town. I take out my wagon, I take it out of town, and if you don't like it, I'm making you frown. Oh, no, I'm making you frown. Oh, it's making me so sad. <laughs> Let's go. Final thoughts on Into the Woods. Our first Sondheim show is on the books. Yes. Yay. If you listen to the Snub Club, you'll know my number one Sondheim show is Merrily We Roll Along. But Into the Woods is certainly in the top three. No, I don't know what the third show is in my top three, but I'll figure it out. That's what the point of the podcast is. Stop yelling at me. I once had a gay man, gay man, explain to me how my favorite Sondheim show should be Passion Boy, Uh, guess what? Uh, It's not Passion. That's not my favorite song, I'm sure. It wasn't then and it isn't now. Too dreary. I love Into the Woods primarily because it is saying so much underneath its deceptively fluffy fairy tale set dressing. You know, screw Shrek. Ella Enchanted, Once Upon a Time, Fractured fucking Bullwinkle and Rocky Fairy Tales. Anything else that attempts to deconstruct these stories, Into the Woods is all we'll ever need. Didn't I say that at the end of Shrek the Musical? I'm fucking saying it again full circle, baby. I do have some additional thoughts on the show, if you can believe it. I still have some thoughts. A prop Milky White cow is more practical and less of a distraction than a puppet or a human in costume. Milky White should not pull focus, all right? I enjoy how at the top of Act 2, the stepsisters and the stepmothers sing, we're so happy, you're so happy. Just as long as you are happy, we'll be happy. It's been in my head, which means it's good. <laughs> Rock solid book moments. These are even more... Rock-solid book moments for you. Little Red insisting the life of a wolf doesn't have the same value as that of a human, to which the witch replies, tell that to a wolf's mother. And Cinderella saying to her prince, I love this moment as well. She says, my father's house was a nightmare. Yours was a dream. Now I want something in between. Very simple, highly effective line right there. It really drives home themes in a very clean, simple way. I never made this clear, but the narrator is pulled into the story by the characters so they can sacrifice him to the giantess in act two. It's a brilliant what the fuck moment that totally upends the conventions of the show. And to the surprise and inspires in audience. Annoy- is something I wish I could experience anew every time I see the show. I feel the Baker's child should be a daughter and not a son. I would change the pronouns in the script. I would make that change. Yes, I would. Uh, and finally, thank you very much to David, who sent me the Bugnuts remix of the PBS recording. I assume everyone has already seen this. I saw it for the first time this week. I had not seen it. It's a fucking hoot. Now, in 1988, Phantom of the Opera took home the award for Best Musical, and the other nominee were romance romance and serafina i don't have any opinions on those two shows so i'm just gonna ask again how do you win best score and best book but not best musical i know phantom is a phenomenon phantom puts the pho in phenomenon i get it but we couldn't have known in 88 it would still be running today also what is a phantom even about thematically. What does it have to say? It doesn't have anything to say. It's about nothing. It's about a phantom. No offense, phantom. Into the Woods should have won Best Musical Full Stop. Hashtag hands down, full stop. Now when it comes to ranking the show, I'm going to give Into the Woods the number two slot on our list. Uh, Even during this recording session, I kept asking myself, should I give it the number one spot? But Carolina Change, despite being a decidedly more stressful experience, a more tougher experience at the theater, it's arguably even more rich Uh, on a technical and thematic level than Into the Woods. So I'm going to give Into the Woods the number two spot. For all I know, that might change later on down the line. That's my prerogative. But for now, it's number two. Show-related ephemera. So for this week's show-related ephemera segment, I want to talk about the film from the 1990s that was developed and then eventually abandoned. So this was going to be a joint between Columbia Pictures and Jim Henson Company. It was going to be their adaptation. Uh, The Jim Henson Company approached Sandra time and Lapine initially in the early 90s with a concept they had already long since perfected. They wanted to see live action actors acting alongside puppets, and the puppets in this project would play all of the animal characters. So Milky White the cow, Cinderella's birds potentially, the wolf. I also kind of assumed the giant would have been a puppet effect as well. So Sondheim and Lapine signed on. They were very eager to have this developed into a film, and Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, great name, uh, these two guys who had previously written the scripts for City Slickers and A League of Their Own, they were hired to develop the screenplay. Sondheim produced an entirely new opening for the show called I Wish, the lyrics for which can be found in the second volume of his collected lyrics. Uh, Those are known as Look, I Made a Hat, as well as the aforementioned Rainbows. So he wrote that for this 90s film, as I already established. Uh, Gans and Mendel's script made a lot of changes, most of which sound very detrimental, honestly. Uh, Character backstories were removed, along with Song's like No More and The Majority of Last Midnight, and The Giant, not The Giantess, acted as the antagonist in the second half of the film. Two readings of this script were held before Rob Meinkoff of The Lion King, he also directed The Lion King, agreed to direct Into the Woods in 1995, but a change in Columbia's leadership resulted in the project going into turnaround, which just means that other studios could have bought the project from Columbia, but no one bit. But let's go back to those two readings of the script, because the casts for those readings are fascinating and represent the 90s at their goofiest and whitest. Now, to be clear, not a single actor at either of these readings was an actor of color. That's nuts. It's even crazier when you recall how Rob Marshall's 2014 film was practically as white Of the 19 actors featured in Rob Marshall's adaptation, only one of the 19 is an actor of color, that being Brazilian-American Lila Crawford, who plays Red. We need to stop assuming this story can only be told by people who look like Grimm brothers. This problem is rooted in how the original Broadway cast itself was entirely white until Felicia Rashad came into the mix, so we need to break this cycle. Anyway, here's a breakdown of those casts from the 1990s. I'll give you the character, who played that character at each of the two readings, and who should have gone on to star in the film had it ever been fully produced. Now, The Baker was played by Martin Short during the first reading, and Robin Williams in the second reading. I would go with Robin Williams myself. The Baker's wife in reading one was Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and during reading two, it was Goldie Hawn. Gotta go with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Myself, Uh, Jack was played by Neil Patrick Harris in reading one. Elijah Wood during reading two, gotta go with Elijah Wood. Jack's mother was played by Mary Steenburgen during reading one, who I also think would be a great pick for The Baker's Wife, but that's just a side note. And then during the second reading, it was Roseanne Barr. I myself am going to go with Mary Steenburgen, and not simply because Roseanne Barr has proven herself to be a complete conservative lunatic. I just, I like Mary Steenburgen a lot. I have a lot of uh, nostalgia for her. I think she, I think she's great. I think she'd be great as Jack's mother. Again, also great as The Baker's Wife. The stepsisters during the first reading were Kathy Najimy and Janine Garofalo. and then for the second reading, we got Carrie Fisher and B.B. Newworth. Gotta go with Carrie Fisher and B.B. Newworth uh, Cinderella during reading one was Cynthia Gibb. And then we had Moira Kelly in the second reading. Moira Kelly, I wasn't really familiar with either of these two actors, but Moira Kelly went on to voice Nala in The Lion King. So I'm just going to go with her. That, I, I need to hang my hat on something, so I'll, I'll go with that, Moira Kelly. Thank you very much. Congrats. Rapunzel was played by Daryl Hannah in the first reading. And you have to understand, the article that I read about the development of this movie, they gave this whole breakdown of these casts, but they don't, for some of these characters, they don't clarify who played the character in the other reading. So in terms of this article, all they, all they say is that Daryl Hannah played her in the first reading. We don't learn who played Rapunzel in the second. So I guess I just got to go with Daryl Hannah. Cinderella's Prince was played by Rob Lowe and Kyle MacLachlan. I'm going to go with Kyle MacLachlan. I'm not a Twin Peaks fan, but I just, I think it's funnier. The idea of him playing a Prince is just funnier to me. Uh, So here we get another example. Prince. No idea who played him in the first reading, but apparently in the second it was Brendan Frazier, so let's go with him. The Giant in the first reading was Michael Jeter, and then we got Dana DeVito in the second. I, I'm sorry, you gotta go with DeVito. I love Michael Jeter with all of my heart, but you gotta go with DeVito. Uh, the Wolf, N.A., uh, again, I'm not sure who played him in the first reading. Then we had Steve Martin in the second. I don't really like that choice at all, but again, I'm hamstrung, my hands are tied, gotta go with Steve Martin. And then finally, uh, The Witch was played by Christine Lottie and Cher. Cher was in the second uh, reading, so uh, you gotta go with her. You just gotta go with her. Also, uh, I'm going to play a song that I recorded. It is known as It Takes Two When You Fight Kaiju. It is a parody. I wrote that song for Alex and Brad to perform on their podcast, Ramjack, specifically episode 158. Uh, With all due respect to those fine fellows, my boys, I did record my own version of the song for this podcast. I am the musical man after all, and so I must sing the song requires knowledge of two pop culture sources the 2013 guillermo del toro film pacific rim and the 1980s sitcom perfect strangers if you're not familiar with either of those sources this may make no sense at all uh it's very dumb and dorky and imperfect but it's fun and i'm not apologizing for his existence so here is it takes two when you fight kaiju You've changed. My cousin, you're different in the drift. No fear, such daring. You're confident in the drift. In memory, you're always there by my side. Like two sheep on a hill aside. One balakir, one layer in. It takes two. A duo out on the sea in the stew When you kill Kaiju, die or do A jaeger's only as good as the crew It takes two of us, watch and learn In America there's a fair way to fight Beating back the blight with a turn of the screw It takes two, I've changed I'm helping, I see it all in the drill no mere turnip while wrestling in the drift. Back home, they'd cry, poor Balky's such a small fry, but you and I can tell those who doubt us to don't be ridiculous. please, put down Dimitri, the battle's begun. We've got to kite you on our tail, like Dirty Harry would say with his gun. You feel lucky, scum. If I scare, it's because I am all too aware of death. We will catch our breath, finding peace, taking care as a pair. We've changed. We're heroes. We're unified in the drift. Once we were zeroes, now glorious in the drift. Bartok, and
2: Appleton cut
0: loose So ahoy Clear the floor for a slick dance of joy As the two of us clear the board With a missile of a sawn and sword No ifs, ands, or buts, make it clear Do not fear, we rid towns of kaiju Chicago and Nepal, me both two. Standing tall, it takes two I told you it was dumb (laughs) thank you very much for indulging me when it comes to that silly song that I wrote Uh, normally this is the moment where we would take a ride on the musical carousel to determine which show we are discussing next week but as I said we have a new Patreon donor Aaron and he has the ability to decide where we go on the musical carousel he decided that next week's subject is going to be the 1993 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical and that is Kiss of the Spider Woman Uh, 1993 that's the same season as the goodbye girl so we're returning to that season last week i forgot to play the truncated carousel cue as i normally do when announcing a patreon selection uh you heard it just a second ago i know but just for the sake of making up for it let's hear it a second time for good measure yeah, there it is. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who donates each and every month via Patreon. That is patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. We give verbal shout-outs to people who give a dollar or more a month. So thank you very much, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. Love how long this list is getting. Oh, I hope it's a million names long and I'll be making <laughs> so many gold doubloons, I do say. <laughs> uh, you can find out what all of the tiers pay out in terms of prizes and special incentives over at patreon.com slash musical but the big thing is that uh, if you pay, if you donate enough money you can get access to the all I ask of you advice series hosted by uh, the Phantom of the Opera and you can also listen to monthly bonus episodes of the Snub Club donations go toward cast recordings, movie rentals, offsetting pod bean costs and if we ever get to $100 in total monthly donations it will result in me producing what I am, uh, I, I think I've established this before but it, I, it, it is going to be stylized as M3, and that stands for the movie musical man. And I've decided that's going to be a monthly series where I'm going to talk about tri- uh, trios of movie musicals. Each episode will be about three musicals linked by some sort of theme. I really want to watch the Descendants movies, Descendants one, two, and three. So please encourage your friends to give money so we can get to that get to that $100 tier, that landmark, and then I'll immediately go to work. I will watch Descendants for you. I I do say iTunes. Yes iTunes. That's where you can subscribe. That's where you can write reviews of the show in the iTunes store. If you write a review in the iTunes store, you can get my cover of Light My Candle from Rent. If you want to stream the show, you can go to MusicalManPod.podbe.com or find us on Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter and follow us there at musicalmanpod and email us at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thank you very much to Catherine who sent me an email this week. She says, I found your podcast because I wanted to listen to some background analysis of Man of La Mancha. I I just saw it yesterday at the Coliseum with Kelsey Grammer. I was shook and suddenly obsessed. You had me laughing out loud on the tube. Fantastic job with history, analysis, the mix of actual music, and of course, humor. Again, thank you, Catherine. Your kind words mean the world to me. Thank you as always to Alex Green again for our logo and Zach Little for our music. And that's that doorbell, baby. You know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting, comes the time for parting. Oh well. We'll catch up some other time. specifically on the next episode of the Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf and good night.